Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell, part of headmirror.com. I'm Jeff Meekum, and today's episode is another addition to our Residency Applicant Toolkit. Today, we'll be discussing DO ENT residencies and applying to ENT as a DO student. We will be talking with a current program director at a previously American Osteopathic Association accredited program and now ACGME accredited residency program in the United States, along with two of his residents. We're looking forward to a great episode, so let's get started. To introduce our guest, we are joined by Dr. Silesh Babu, a board-certified neurotologist who practices with a well-established private practice otology group in Michigan. Of note, for this episode, his training occurred at allopathic programs for medical school residency and fellowship. Alongside his clinical duties, Dr. Babu has held his current role as residency program director for a previously American Osteopathic Association accredited and now ACGME accredited residency program for the last six years. His experience in allopathic programs and osteopathic programs before and after the ACGME merge gives him a unique perspective into both the similarities and differences between DO and MD programs. Thanks for coming on the show, Dr. Babu. Jeff, thanks for having me. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to spread some information. Also joining us today are two of Dr. Babu's current residents. Our first resident guest is Dr. Bo Ping. Dr. Ping is a PGY5 who will soon be graduating and has accepted a private practice position as a general otolaryngologist in Hawaii. Our second resident guest is Dr. Brian Anderson, a current PGY2 and soon-to-be PGY3. Both Dr. Ping and Dr. Anderson are graduates of osteopathic medical schools. Bo and Brian, glad to have you here. Hi. Thank you, Jeff. I'm really excited to be here. This is going to be fun. Great. Well, we're glad to have you all on. To get started, today's podcast is a hodgepodge of different items pertaining to DO training and ENT. As a broad outline, we'll cover three areas. The first is a broad overview of DO otolaryngology residency training in the United States. The second is to give advice to DO medical students interested in applying to otolaryngology. And then the third is to give advice to MD students interested in applying to previously DO-associated otolaryngology residency programs. To start us off, Dr. Babu, what is the ACGME merge of MD and DO residencies, and how does that impact students who are applying to otolaryngology? Well, the ACGME, which of course we all know is the American College of Graduate Medical Education, uh, had said years ago that they wanted to have a accreditation for all otolaryngology programs, whether they were osteopathic or allopathic. And they headed down this path where they would have uh, an ability to have a single accredited body to look at these programs and then create some criteria that they needed to meet over a uh, transition of five years. I think by 2020 that all the programs had to meet criteria in order to become uh, singly accredited so that now the distinction becomes a little blurred between osteopathic and allopathic programs and they now are considered single accreditation programs, uh, which now opens the door for uh, osteopathic students to apply to these programs, as well as allopathic students to apply to these programs, uh, and vice versa. They can apply to uh, all the programs in the country uh, dedicated towards otolaryngology. So now the merger has been complete, and the accreditation body is the ACGME for all the uh, programs, uh, and they go through the same type of site reviews and accreditation and uh, tenure cycle that occurs with all the other uh, residency programs. And I think that's a really important distinction as we talk about DO and MD programs, because now they have the same considerations. Um, throughout this podcast, we'll refer to them as DO programs because historically they, they were different. Um, and I think just for the 
clarity in this episode, we'll refer to them as DO programs, but at this point, they are all considered one. So what does a DO residency program look like post-merge, and how might a DO program differ from an MD program? Previously, osteopathic programs uh, had a curriculum where they had uh, residents that were being trained by faculty, but maybe the scholarly rigor, the um, uh, presentations at national meetings involved in manuscript preparation, uh, research maybe weren't things that were formally taught or uh, formally educated to the group. And that probably is probably one of the uh, big advantages of the ACGME looking at these things to develop criteria and uh, evaluations for these programs to meet so that they can uh, perform research and have scholarly activity, grand rounds, journal clubs. So now the program looks very similar to any program that we all know from the past and from our training. The differences now may be that there are still um, faculty and residents that are working on research and preparation, and they didn't have a lot of training in that in the past. And now it's becoming um, part of their residency that they're either learning on the fly or they're learning because faculty are helping them with it. And I think that's uh, made a big advantage. So very specifically to our program that, you know, we've had a very strong uh, research background and the residents have done an amazing job uh, completing scholarly activity and presentations at national meetings, local meetings, uh, and manuscript preparation and publications. Uh, so that really has ramped up what was formerly the osteopathic program has now made it uh, clearly a very academic-driven uh, program. And from my understanding, many of the uh, previously DO-associated programs are more based in community and private practice settings. So how does the focus of training in the community and private practice differ from that of the academic setting? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, it, it, varies tr- it is true that um, most of these programs have had a community-based uh, practice and private practices and uh, It's a blend of a lot of these practices coming together, which creates a uh, high volume, maybe more bread and butter type practices, specifically in otolaryngology. Um, But then when we add in certain faculty that can be involved in uh, head and neck uh, surgery, for example, or in the subspecialties of otology, neurotology, laryngology, facial plastics, uh, they start getting the complexity of cases just as they would at an academic center. So it's a good blend between private practices, uh, bread and butter cases, as well as the high complexity cases requiring uh, multiple subspecialists working together. Um, So it creates a very good experience. And I think if we then add on the level of uh, academics and research, uh, it really does carry a similar type reputation as some of these uh, allopathic programs do. We just have to have it maybe a little bit more organized because it's not as uh, coordinated or under one umbrella as we would like it to be. I agree with everything Dr. Babu just said. Um, I do think that the one difference would be that uh, it is true that, you know, there is multiple different types of groups that, you know, different groups that we work with. But again, the experience at the end is, um, is, is, is excellent. It's just that it would be nice to have all, um, all the coordination together, uh, you know, as opposed to in a huge academic setting where everything's under one umbrella. And along with that, I think a question that might come up is, being that there's more exposure to community and private practice and kind of getting the whole sampling of different types of settings, 
do you find that more residents in these DO programs end up going on to do fellowships or to not do fellowships? And do they frequently take jobs in the private practice or the academic practice um, afterwards at different rates than students that would train at MD programs? That's a good question, Jeff. Um, I'm looking at my graduating year with uh, just the, again, the traditionally DO programs in the area and the graduating seniors, and about half of us end up going into uh, some sort of fellowship training, and you know the other half of us uh, are going into just general otolaryngology. I think it also depends on the year. It's, it's hard for me to say because we do have a smaller number of us uh, overall, so it could differ drastically from year to year, but that's a very good question. I don't know if you have anything to add, Dr. Babu or Brian. Yeah, I don't I don't uh, I don't really know what that looks like compared to the kind of like the MD counterparts, I guess. But I was just kind of perusing through uh, some of our other um, traditionally DO programs and just kind of looking at their past residents. And I mean, and, and you do see there's I've seen them in, in uh, facial plastics and head and neck, um, pediatrics, laryngology, laryngology mm-hmm. and then some general as well. So I do think that, um, you know, I just historically looking through some of the, the past applicants, looking at their alumni, it does appear that uh, we, we are going into fellowships as well, but there's plenty who also go into general. And I don't really know if that is different from kind of the MD side in terms of what percentage does what. Yeah. From my overview site, I would probably say it seems very similar that there's a good blend of uh, people doing fellowships uh, versus going into practice. Um, I will say that it probably is more likely especially historically from our program or many of the osteopathic programs in the area that the um, residents take a job in private practice as opposed to an academic position. So maybe even if they do a fellowship, um, I'm trying to think like some pediatric otolaryngology fellows, I think have taken an academic position, but I think the majority of people, even after a fellowship have gone into private practice and that may just be from their training and what they've seen is that type of environment uh, and so since that's what they're exposed to and that's what they're used to, I think that's probably what they go into as well. And that, and that may change over time, but I think that may be one of the different things that, you know, in an academic setting, you're used to that. You see that and that's what you're comfortable with. So many graduates end up in an academic center versus if they had a taste of private practice and things like that, I think they gravitate towards that as well and may find some advantages or you know, certain disadvantages of that. But I think that may be a product of their training. So moving on to the next section, talking uh, specifically to DO students who are uh, wanting to apply to ENT. Given that most DO students do not have an associated ENT program at their medical school, for those DO students who are interested in or want to learn more about ENT, what tips do you have for getting exposed to ENT as a specialty? Sure. And I think both Brian and I can comment on this pretty extensively that Um, I've had, so I went to Michigan State uh, and um, I did have some affiliated, you know, ENT programs in the, in the periphery of, in the area. Um, But I do think that if you're lucky enough to know that you want to go into ENT early, uh, then definitely try to select the base hospital that does have an otolaryngology program, or if not, just otolaryngology attendings that you can get to know, get to know the specialty, get some letters of recommendation um, and going forward. Um, and then obviously get started on research if you can possibly do that, uh, you know, in addition to your coursework, obviously, which you want to excel at. It sounds like you want to be the perfect package, but it's not that's not really what I'm trying to say is that you want to focus on, you know, all these aspects kind of early on and um, try to really express your interest in multiple ways. You know, getting to know people, getting research done and then obviously doing well on your board as well, I, I'd say. 
Yeah, I, I um I didn't come from a program that had a home ENT or was close to a uh, you know like an academic center. Um, and so I was fortunate in that I knew about ENT. I knew about it basically through my mom, who was a singer, and so she would send a lot of her students to ENTs. Um, and so in that way, I, I kind of knew about it and knew that I wanted to kind of look into it a little bit more. I didn't necessarily have the the resources or the capabilities to do that as a first and second uh, year because I, I just wasn't around much ENT. Um, but things that helped me was like the Undifferentiated Medical Student Podcast. Um, that was uh, that had two uh, specific episodes. One was on a peds ENT and then one was uh, of a generalist uh, ENT physician. And so, you know, that was really helpful to listen to just to get an idea of, of uh, what it was like to be an ENT. And then for me, I, I had to work, uh, I, I kind of had to work harder than others just to get the exposure. So when I was on general, um, on my general surgery rotation, I, I basically just told my attending, hey, I'm interested in ENT. Whenever I see an ENT surgery on the, on the OR board, if you're okay, I'd love to go to it. And he, he let me just kind of slip away from my general surgery duties and, and go and kind of shadow and, and be with the ENT physicians. And that kind of developed a relationship that got me the exposure that I wanted to um, and ultimately the letters of recommendation that I needed. But I kind of had to go out of my way to get that and it ended up going on like the weekends. I would I would go to uh, if they had a big head and neck case on the weekend, you know, I would even if I wasn't doing anything, I would go and join that. Um Another thing that I, I've been stressing to a lot of the medical students from my, my program is, um, you know, just joining in educations. Um, I guess that was more of a thing that we could have done this year, uh, mainly because everything was online. Um, but we invited and, and welcomed any, any medical student that wanted to be a part of our online educations. And that was a way for them to kind of participate without, um, without you know, having to travel too far. Um, and then I think the last thing is, you know, if there's any interest group, um, an ENT at your medical school, that's always helpful. And if per chance you have an interest in ENT early and you know that you want to look into it more and there's not an interest group, uh, you can start an interest group. Um, and I think you can do that through the Academy website. I think they have the resources to help you uh, begin an interest group at your medical school. Um, but I think those are some some tips as well, just getting some sort of exposure, some sort of experience with it before uh, well, if you don't have uh, like an at-home program. Yeah. And just to add on one more thing, you know, even if you, for some reason, decide later on in your medical school career that you want to do ENT, and I still don't think it's too late. I think you can just, what what I would recommend is, you know, reach out to people, even if you have to cold call uh, and send an email with uh, to somebody that you don't know. Um, a lot of the times, you know, these otolaryngology attendings are very, very kind and they'll be able to respond to you and kind of tell you uh, kind of the next step forward. I actually did a little bit of that as well. I you know, kind of cold called some attendings as well and just see if I could join in on their cases and they were very welcoming. I think that's great advice. And and I'll make a plug. It, it's something happening in the future. We have two members of Headmere, two resident contributors who are putting together a national otolaryngology interest group um, that would be specifically for students who might not have one at their school or want to get involved on maybe a more broad scale and more details will be forthcoming about that in the future. So Brian, you kind of already touched on this uh, already a bit, but how exactly does graduating from a DO school change and alter the process of applying to ENT as a specialty? Yeah. Um, so one thing to mention um, in terms of applying for the ENT residencies, 
before the merger, the the DO, just in general, all DO programs, their match, if you were applying for both DO and MD programs, the DO match was before the MD match. I think it was about a, one, a, a month before. And so before this merger, if you, if you wanted to go in, into an MD program and you also applied DO and you got accepted to a DO program, you had to either decide to go to the DO program and forego the MD match, or you had to commit to the DO program and forego the MD match. I think that's right. That's how that worked, right? Yeah. So, so I actually did that. I, I matched through the separate process. And when I started, uh, there was the AC Jimmy merger. So it was very interesting, but right. I had to, I, so I matched into a traditional EDO program. So I had to un, um, basically forego the AC Jimmy match at the time. Um, but that's no longer the case for students applying. Right. That's no longer mm-hmm. the case. But I, I mentioned that just to say, uh, you know, historically, um, it may not seem that many DO applicants went to MD programs that may be kind of, kind of one part of that process of a DO getting into an ENT program was in, in many ways you, you, they kind of self-selected themselves, themselves out of the MD match, because if you got accepted to a, to a DO ENT program, why would you, why would you deny that unless you had some, you also couldn't, you, you had to leak, you're legally bound by a contract. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. You had to just not even want to yeah, be they, a part they of they the match. You. Yep. Yeah. So, so in, in many ways that kind of self-selected you out. So that was one important thing historically in the process. Now, um, you know, and we'll, we'll talk a lot about this later uh, in the podcast in terms of uh, the letters of recommendation and, and, and board scores and, and how the DO applicant kind of goes through that. Um, but I thought first we could just kind of go through the NRMP data and, uh, and talk about those charting outcomes um, the NRMP, uh, podcast earlier is a really great one to listen to. Um, they, they talk in detail about how to properly kind of interpret that data. Um, but I, I, I thought we could just kind of compare and, and look at the, um, the, the 2020 data, the, the, the most recent match, there is some preliminary data, but it doesn't go into, uh, exactly the details that are present in the, in the 2020 year. Um, so just kind of going through that. Um, quickly, uh, so so now there are 129 programs. Um, of those 129 programs, there are 350 positions. And in 2020, uh, only two of those positions went unfilled. Um, total, there were 505 applicants. Um, so of, of the MD applicants, uh, there were 421 MD seniors. And uh, that was uh, that applied, and of those, three hundred and ten matched. Um, and you compare that to the DO seniors. So, of the DO applicants, there were only thirty-three DO seniors that applied, and of those, only seventeen matched. And so, that's that's just one one thing to point out that we're a pretty small group. Uh, in the total of of the five hundred and five applicants, we were only thirty-three. That's only about six percent of the of the total ENT applicants that applied. When you look at the DO uh, seniors, um, the mean number of contiguous ranks is nine for those who matched and four for those who don't match. And again, that that correlates with the same probability. So a a 0.9 probability of matching um, if you have nine or more contiguous ranks. The average USMLE step one score was uh, 240 for those who matched and unmatched was 234. And that is... uh, in some ways, um, significantly lower compared that to the the MD counterparts with a a, a score of two forty eight for those who matched in two forty three. The average USMLE Step two score was uh, of those who matched was two fifty two, 
and unmatched was 238. I can talk about the Comlex scores, but I, I tend to not, and we can talk about why in a little bit, um, but mainly because when you look at the data, it doesn't really correlate well with probability of matching. So the the average uh, Comlex level one, and the Comlex level one is is like the, the USMLE version for DO students. So if you were a DO student and you were just applying to DO programs, or if you were graduating from a DO program, you... Uh, did not have to take the USMLE. Instead, you took the Comlex. Um, and so that's a totally different grading system. Um, it's much higher, um, but the, 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 the average for those who matched was a score of 660. But that only correlates with a probability of matching of 0.6. So it's almost no correlation with your Comlex score and you matching. And so it's almost not worth talking about it um, the, the USMLE is, is the much more important score, I think both for DO programs and, and obviously MD programs, the, the average research experience and those who matched was 4.4. Um, and then the mean number of abstracts, presentations, and publications for those who matched was 11.2. Again, most everyone who had five or more abstracts, presentations, and publications, uh, matched. That was 12 of the 16 that matched last year had five or more. So in many ways, um, when you're when you're thinking about applying as a DO student, um, when you look at it on on paper, the numbers run to be about the same. Probably the biggest difference would be the average USMLE score between the DOs and MDs, 248 versus 240 in the DO group. Um, but all of that is to say that as the DOs who tend to match, they tend to, to look pretty competitive on paper. And they it it basically says that you know, applying as a DO, even if you wanted to get into a DO program, you you have to be competitive. You have to do lots of research. You have to do, um, you have to score well on your USMLE scores. And having a, a large number of contiguous ranks is important as well. Yeah, I think that's a, a great overview and leads into the next question. So Dr. Babu, for a DO student who's interested in ENT, what would you say are some of the key accomplishments to building a competitive application to otolaryngology? So how, how does someone be a competitive applicant? Yeah, probably it's a, uh, it's a generalization to whatever program you're applying, whether it's allopathic or osteopathic. It's a very similar criteria, as Brian uh, pointed out. So I think, you know, we look for, it's becoming harder, I think, as everyone would note, uh, in terms of applications. I think the caliber of students uh, generally is becoming quite good. They're getting involved with research earlier on. Um, students such as yourself, you know, are getting involved in other activities. Uh, and I think it becomes a challenge. So to answer your question, you know, we look at certain criteria. How do they do in their classes uh, in terms of class rank, if that's available? Uh, how do they do on their board scores compared to the USMLE? Step one probably carries the most amount of weight. Step two carries uh, some weight, just so I can see there's not a big drop off on step two compared to step one. Um, step two weight, in my opinion, you know, carries some, but not as important potentially. And in the uh, osteopathic world, I'm not familiar with the Comlex as well. And I think uh, in general, most of the programs, if we're having single accreditation, it really makes sense that you just kind of then standardize the uh, board examination and use the USMLE. So I think we accept both, but we really tend to use USMLE step one and step two scores more than the uh, Comlex. 
I do think rotations are critical in the osteopathic world. There has been a uh, strong push for uh, audition rotations at many places, and that's usually where you have an opportunity to shine, just like uh, sub-internships are. Um, but for many of these students, that's the, you know, their one or two rotations that they're allowed to have, uh, and then they're going to have to put their best foot forward to try to get a good letter recommendation potentially or really see if they can fit in with that program and see if they can create a um, positive uh, relationship there so they would have a strong fit there. Um, so I think letters of recommendation, uh, involvement in research to some degree. Uh, I'm not sure I'm so concerned about whether or not they have a fair amount of abstracts and manuscripts necessarily. I rather, I really what them, want them to know is do they know the format, how to come to an idea and then how to follow that to fruition and how challenging is that and how complex was that process and do they understand the organization, the timeliness and some manuscript preparation. Do they understand the basics of that so that when they become residents, they can you know, take off a little bit easier in doing some of those things. And of course, as we all know, the most important part of that research is not really, it's the research, of course, but it's like to answer a question. Is there a question that you have that you've posed and did you figure out an appropriate way to answer that question? And then similarly, if you know how hard and challenging it is to do a research project yourself, then when you analyze other journal articles or data or statistics, you have an appreciation for that. And you can then um, take that journal article and decide whether or not you agree or disagree because you have ways to piece through that because you work through it yourself. So I think that's the real benefit of research in a long convoluted way of saying, why do I care medical students do research is really, I just want them to have some appreciation of some of that uh, down the road. So I think if you're an allopathic or osteopathic applicant, it's a very similar uh, criteria we're looking for. Regarding letters of recommendation, how many letters should students be trying to get when applying to ENT, and do they all need to be from ENT physicians, and are letters from DO attendings viewed differently when applying than letters from MD attendings? I think ideally you want to have at least three letters of recommendation, um, four may be good. Really what we're looking for is I need someone's evaluation who knows you well personally, uh, either in a mentoring relationship in a scholarly relationship or academically, something that just gives me some other insight uh, into how is this person going to be and how are they going to fit in? Uh, how are they going to handle stress? How are they going to handle different conflicts? Some kind of idea of sense of that is what I'm looking for. Uh, ideally, I want it from ENT physicians because then they know what the residency rigor would be and what is expected to some degree. And then they have an insight then based on that is how well would this applicant fit in in that. It doesn't have to be general surgeons or somebody about the surgical field, I think is a good uh, surrogate to that as well. But I need someone with some OR experience or being in the OR with this uh, applicant to kind of give me some, you know, again, has this applicant ever passed out in the OR? Well, I'm not sure an internal medicine doctor, someone would be able to tell me that insight, obviously, you know, being facetious, but it's that type of insight I'm looking for in some of these. Um, and I do think that it's uh, important to have, you know, maybe a little varied. So I don't need four otolaryngology letters of recommendation, maybe, you know, two from otolaryngology, maybe one from a surgical uh, uh, specialist or subspecialist, maybe the surgery coordinator. Uh, I think that would be a well-rounded thing. And I think uh, your other question was, what well, does it matter what type of credentials the attending has who writes it? I would say no. It doesn't really matter to me. I really base it on um, their feel for the applicant. So what I really want to get a sense of is how well do they actually know this applicant? And is this letter written in a very um, personalized, they know this 
person to some degree and then took this time to write this supportive letter? Or is it more of a generic letter? Um, and we get a sense that since we, we write a lot of letters of recommendation and we see a lot of letters of recommendation, you can get a sense for that. So I think the most ideal thing I would tell an applicant is you really want a person who knows you well, would be able to be uh, very supportive of your application and feels that you would be a great fit as an otolaryngologist in the community and uh, therefore are recommending you for this residency. That's sort of the way I try to educate the applicant when they're either asking me or asking someone for a letter. And Brian and Bo, what was your experience getting letters of recommendation when applying to residency? Uh, well, for me, again, not having a, a home institution, um, a, a home ENT institution, it was a little challenging. Um and I, you can read so much on, you know, what kind of letters should you get for ENT? And there's, there's a number of websites who kind of comment on, should it be from the program director or should it be from someone who knows you? And, and I think ultimately, like Dr. Babu kind of mentioned as well, that, um, you know, letters from, from ENT physicians who can speak really well of you, I think no matter what will look the best, um, a, you know, a, a, a mediocre letter from a super famous program director, I don't, I don't think will carry as much weight, especially if they're super famous compared to someone who may not be as well known, who just has glowing remarks of you. Um, and so for me, I did try to get, um, I got two letters. So I ultimately had three ENT letters and I had two letters from, uh, just the local community ENT physicians that were in my town where my medical school was, where I did my third and fourth year of training. Um, and then my third one, I did try to get from a ENT residency program. And so I ended up getting one, um, while I was on my audition rotations and I, I specifically on one of my rotations, um, just from the beginning of that rotation. And it was a month long rotation, uh, just said straight, you know, like upfront that, Hey, I, I need a third letter and I would like to get it from this one attending who I, liked, um, very early on in the rotation. And so, uh, and I told that to the, the, uh, the residents who were making my schedule and they made it a point to kind of give me a little extra time with that attending. Uh, they really kind of helped me out with that. And at the end of that rotation, I, I asked for that third letter and, and that's how I got my third one. So I kind of echo what Brian and Dr. Babu both said. I think, um, getting letters of recommendation from people who know you really well and can attest to your character and, and how well you will do in an otolaryngology residency is probably the most important thing. I was, um, I was very lucky uh, to have met my mentor on a medical mission, actually not even knowing that there was an otolaryngologist on the trip. And that was, a, you know, when I was an MS2 and uh, basically got to know him really well um, and uh, ended up following him to the clinic, to the OR and just got, you know, uh, got a glowing letter from him and got introduced to the field uh, a little bit, you know, uh, earlier that way. And um, I ended up getting two letters of uh, recommendation from otolaryngologists. And then I had one from a general surgeon as well. Um, again, it was on one of my general surgery rotations where I, uh, you know, uh, made a point to perform well and, and do well. And, and I knew that this attending liked me and, and was able to get a strong letter of recommendation. So I prioritized that above getting a third otolaryngology letter uh, because I knew that, you know, general surgery residency is hard. And, and if someone's had good things to say about me, I should probably you know, let other people see it. <laughs> so. Great. And both of you sort of brought up away rotations or audition rotations. So how many way rotations should a DO student applying to otolaryngology do? 
And should they focus on only rotating at DO programs, or do you think they should also rotate at MD programs? I think that's an evolving answer, um, mainly because I, I, like Dr. Babu mentioned earlier, his, I think historically the DO programs put a little more emphasis on their audition rotations. Um, and I think there has been a culture of um, interviewing those that they rotate. And so uh, for the longest time, it was very strategic of the DO applicant to rotate at as many DO programs that they could. Um, because that got the exposure that you needed and also kind of maximized uh, potentially how many interviews you may get. I think that, that now that the merger has happened, and especially now that um, MDs can be a part of, of the DO programs, um, we are interviewing more, or more, more people who haven't rotated are getting interviewed. And so I, I think in some ways that culture has kind of shifted in the, in, in the same way, you know, um, DOs, um, being able to apply to the MD programs. When I applied, uh, it, it was the recommended approach to uh, rotate at as many DO programs as you could. I uh, did not take that recommendation and uh, split it halfway. So I rotated, I, I did do a lot of rotations. I, I think I did five and they were all one month long. Um, and so I did, um, half of those were DO and half of those were MD. So I, I did rotate at, I did do a lot of away rotations. Like I said, when I applied, it was, you know, the, the merger hasn't happened. So traditionally we did rotate as much as possible at these, you know, these programs to gain, uh, just FaceTime with these program directors and residents. I still think that for DO students applying to traditionally, you know, AOA programs, it is a good idea to do as many rotations in those programs as you, as you can. In addition, I do think that, you know, I, I just like I, you know, just like any other student applying, I think gaining uh, FaceTime with program directors and residencies, uh, residents are important, whether it's um, a full on rotation or just showing up for grand rounds. Uh, so I, I still recommend it. Dr. Babu, do you have anything to add to that? You know, it's hard in this, uh, pandemic uh, virtual world that we're in, you know, the away rotations really has, I think, hurt many students and applicants and residency programs to try to assess things. And so I think it does uh, reiterate the fact that I do think these rotations and face-to-face contact is important. And I do think having those uh, relationships in person are, are beneficial, both for the applicant to see the residency program in action and, um, and view it firsthand as well as for the uh, seeing how they fit in and the residents can see how the applicant fits in, you know, at the same time. So I, th- I think we miss out on that a little bit now during this time period, virtual, maybe some benefit, but uh, I think in a long winded way, I'm saying, yeah, I think it's important to have these rotations. And uh, even if it's two weeks or even one day, we have some local students that are interested and we tell them if you can't do a formal rotation, that's great. Just like Bola saying, you know, why don't you come to our grand rounds and, you know, after about a month of just seeing the grand round, seeing how well they're prepared, seeing how well they can answer questions, how well can they think on their feet, kind of gives us a sense as to how well would they uh, be as a resident potentially. So all those little things, I think, do make a difference. Let's talk a little bit about scheduling third and fourth year clerkships. So from my understanding, DO programs frequently have students apply for clerkships as opposed to them being built into the institution curriculum, like many of the MD programs. And these clerkships, from my understanding, are frequently, but not always, community-based. Do you have any advice for DO students looking to schedule their clerkships in order to optimize their CV 
for an ENT application? In, in DO schools, um, which I think may be a little bit different from these more academic um, MD medical schools, um, there is a different process um, sometimes with how third and fourth year works. So for a number of DO schools, including the one that I went to, um, when you are finishing up your um, clinical years um, or your preclinical years and um, moving into your clinical years, you um, kind of rank hospitals that you want or you kind of apply for the hospital that you want to spend your third and fourth year. Um, And so for me, I, I basically had... Um, so many hospitals that were kind of all over the state uh, that I ranked. And uh, ultimately, I was kind of paired to uh, one of my top three school, uh, top three hospitals. And I think that is important to think about uh, as a DO um, applying for ENT is um, there were the option of being at a more community um, rural based hospital that maybe had a much more primary care focus. Uh, versus being at a larger uh, hospital that may have more um, subspecialty involvement uh, that may give you a little more um, kind of exposure to those subspecialties, including ENT. And then as a, as a third year and fourth year, uh, again, there is some variety um, in the different um, DO medical schools on how that third year looks. There are some Um, third year medical schools that um, you essentially kind of apply per month for the rotation that you want to do. And, and it has to usually meet some sort of criteria for me. And I, and I believe for Bo as well, our third years were um, relatively fixed. I I had a a pre-made schedule that um, included a lot of primary care, but also included like general surgery and internal medicine and some critical care. Um, and so that was a part of my third year. I did not have any electives, so I didn't have much say on, uh, if there was something that I was specifically interested in that it wasn't being covered as a third year. Uh, I, I didn't have the option to, uh, pursue that as a third year student, but I do think if, if you don't have a preset schedule and you are, um, and you do need to, um, apply for, um, all the different rotations that you'll do as a third year. Um, you know, general surgery obviously is important. Um, if you can't do ENT, there's always the oral maxillofacial surgery that gives some crossover exposure. I think radiation oncology can give you some exposure and maybe some of those head and neck cancers. Um, a surgical ICU rotation, um, can always be helpful as well. And, um, and if, if at all, you can do a plastics rotation. I think all those, uh, have some element of of training that would be beneficial as an ENT resident. Yeah, and I completely agree with Brian. I think I mentioned it uh, earlier in the podcast that when I was picking a um, hospital, I just picked, basically, I went down the roster of faculty uh, and residency programs and picked the one with the uh, most amount of acute care, tertiary care, and self-specialty, uh, knowing that I was interested in self-specialty surgery, in particular, otolaryngology. So you could, you know, cross over uh, in terms of when you're on a certain rotation, say, for example, if you're in the IC, you can say, hey, can I go take care of the uh, the sicker head and neck patients, or if you're on uh, general surgery, can you go scrub in, in an laryngology procedure? I think those are things that you know you should definitely take into consideration. And what advice do you have for helping students get involved in research if their medical school does not have a robust research infrastructure? 
I see that more actually in, in where we're at for, um, for residency that a, a lot of our residency programs that are in the area are, are pretty open and, and, you know, we happily welcome any medical student that's interested in helping out with research. And so I would say for those who don't have, um, uh, if they're not a part of an institution that does research, that was a challenge for me. I, I no one was doing research, especially ENT research. And so, uh, you know, one of the things is to is to reach out to other programs. It doesn't matter how far away they are, and, and just say, "Hey, you know, I'm interested in participating in research, whether that's writing abstracts or helping with the paper or, or um, you know, collecting data. However, that may be, you can just basically cold call. That's what I did. I, I basically just reached out to um, whoever was the contact information for um, an ENT residency program and just said, Hey, I'm, I'm interested in participating in research and, you know, I'd love to help out however I can. And it either, you know, didn't come to fruition or, or I was able to, uh, you know, at least talk about possibly starting something that would be as hard as it may be. I, I think that would be, um, a good way to participate in research in some form or fashion, especially in ENT, if you don't have anything at your home institution is, is to just reach out to these, to these other ENT programs. I think, you know, if I can add on a little bit, so some of it I think is when you're doing your away rotations or at least reaching out to the away programs, if you don't have your own um, program in your own institute, I think that's a good time to actually reach out then as well. And I think if I'm an applicant, I would look into what research has the faculty done, um, read up on those manuscripts, do a little bit of your own homework. Um, a lot of times I have applicants who will reach out to me and say, I'm interested in doing research. What can I be involved with? And I'll ask them, well, what do you think the last handful of things we've been working on that you find interesting? Because I want to know a little bit, like, did they do a little bit of homework? Did they actually look at the literature and do they understand what research means? I think they know they need to check the box for research, but they re- do they really need to know why is it important to do the research? And part of that research is you really want to know, like, well, what's the uh, pathophysiology of certain of the disease processes in uh, ENT or what you're learning about in your uh, classroom? Are you applying that to maybe what the literature is currently saying? And if you really had a passion or a, a excitement about ENT, you would be doing a little bit of this on your own. So when I meet with an applicant and they're talking about research, I want a little bit to know of like, well, what ideas do you have? What has piqued your interest when you've done your own um, research yourself in the literature? And how can you apply that to ideas that you may have? And I don't expect them to have an idea that's earth shattering by all means, but at least they have some concepts of it. Or maybe they even think of something. I can think of a couple of students that came up with ideas that then came into fruition. And we end up coming up with manuscripts because of it, because they just had a different way of looking at uh, you know, something like Meniere's disease, for example. So I think it's those type of ideas that they need to be um, getting. And I think when they are, if they're able to come up with ideas like that or brainstorm different things with their mentor, then I think that goes a long way when it comes to the letter of recommendation, for example, or the actual research and the preparation of that, that goes a long way. It is a challenge because I don't think many of the uh, community-based programs have built-in research that uh, is occurring. So plugging in a student is a little bit challenging for these applicants and i think they have to do a little bit of extra work and um and should be even more proud when they see it come to fruition because they did have to go an extra mile to make it happen when they're not at some of these places that can just you know allow you in a little bit easier and and if i can add one thing as well I, i i know for for our program with our website we are you know we're adding in a portion that's essentially all of the running unpublished still working on research projects 
and then a contact information that, you know, essentially says, hey, if you're interested in, in participating or helping out with any of these, you know, here's this person that you can reach out. And that typically always ends up in a, in a, in a text message to our residency group and just says, hey, we've got an applicant or a medical student who's interested in helping out with research. Does anyone have a project idea? And, you know, hopefully that will allow, you know, help us get our research done, but also provide an opportunity for a medical student to participate. Moving on to our last section, this is uh, more specifically targeted to MD students um, who are applying. So do DO programs consider MD applicants, Dr. Babu, and are they on the same footing in the application process? Yeah, Jeff, we end up having um, applicants now in a higher volume than we did before. So years ago, we probably had about 30 to 40 osteopathic applicants to our program, and we interviewed anywhere from 18 to 20 of them for two spots. And now with the uh, single accreditation process and it opening up to uh, multiple other applicants, we now probably get 250 to 300 applications and we have to comb through and try to figure out which applicants really are looking at a program uh, such as ours with you know good earnest and they actually are really interested in coming to the program. And so we narrow it down to now we interview more. I think we interview anywhere from 20 to 25 uh, applications or uh, applicants. Um, and then we try to pick the two. So, Yes, we have. We view them the exact same. In fact, we internally discuss it in our group that when we are looking at applications and applicants, we take out the DO or the MD after their names because really what we're looking at is the person, the application itself, and um, and the quality of the applicant. Things that we talked about earlier: letters of recommendation, their scores, research that they were involved with, and you know how good of a fit were they during their rotation with us plays a strong role as opposed to just the credentials they have on their um, end of their name. And what would you say to an MD student who's interested in applying to a previously DO-affiliated otolaryngology program? You know, for, for the MD who's interested in a DO program to know that, uh, especially at our program as well, that it, we still cover all of the subspecialties, you know, in terms of, you know, what is your experience going to be like? Um, you're still getting a general ENT experience, but you're still getting an experience in all of the different uh, subspecialties as well. So it's it's not lacking in, in any particular area uh, of ENT throughout your training. You you get a, a, a completely broad uh, experience in, in general and in all of the subspecialties. And I, I think sometimes that's important for the MD to know, even you know when they're coming out of maybe an academic institution and, and looking at these DO programs that may be private practice, you're still getting the exposure to all of the subspecialties um, completely. And to add on a little bit more to that, you actually are still getting the same rigor of uh, research and um, grand rounds and scholarly activity and exposure to the subspecialties, as Brian mentioned, the complexity of cases, uh, meeting all the key indicators, facial trauma, um, facial plastics, which is a big component of the program that they get a great experience with. So there's a lot of benefits. So I think as a sort of take-home message for the allopathic students or MD students who are applying is that um, in the past, maybe the osteopathic programs were maybe uh, not looked at it with the same type of uh, ability, but I would tell you that seems to have changed. And I think that they should look at these programs with a lot more uh, open-mindedness and consider them because the training will set them for a great career in academics in the future, fellowships, uh, or general ENT practice in a, a community setting, um, whatever they want. All right. So as we look to finish, 
Uh, do any of you have any parting words of advice or anything that you think we missed that you want to make sure you talk about before we wrap things up? No, I think that was super comprehensive. The one thing I want to, you know, anyone listening to this podcast, especially medical students, I want you to take away is that um, if you think you want to do the specialty, I, I say go for it, right? I, I know we make it seem like it's highly competitive and you have to do all these things and have all these check boxes, but uh, I do think that sometimes, you know, just having the uh, persistence and hard work in itself, uh, and if a program sees that, that in itself uh, can carry you a long way. So, you know, if you're thinking about applying, I'd say, you know, go ahead and go, go for it. Yeah. And, and I would say that if you, if you don't have, uh, you know, people to talk to about ENT, even though you may be interested, the, the undifferentiated medical student podcast, um, otomatch.com and, and headmirror.com are all great online resources that provide comprehensive information on getting into ENT and what ENT is all about. And those are great resources to look at. Yeah, I think um, they covered it very well and you did a great job, Jeff, uh, going through the uh, topics. Um, I think, you know, as, as all applications or all applicants as they're looking at otolaryngology, um, I think, yeah, probably some take-home messages I feel personally as a program director and as a, a neurotologist is, you know, it, it seems to be competitive to some degree, but I think if you reach out, I think Bo pointed out before, like the community is very open armed and welcoming to try to help people. And if you really reach out, whether it's to, you know, podcasts like this, whether it's going online and um, doing some research on your own to try to pull it up. But if you reach out to many residents in ENT, many uh, faculty in ENT, they're more than willing to reach or to accept that and probably take people under their wing and try to guide them to some degree. I think it'd be very rare that you would find that to not be the case. And so I think I would just, you know, sort of leave that thought that if you're interested in ENT and you find it uh, something in your future, I would pursue it. And really the earlier you can have an exposure, the better, which is a little challenging because not everybody knows about ENT until they're later on in their uh, medical school uh, training. But if they have exposure and they reach out, I think it works out in their favor to really push hard in that direction and and try to um, break down some barriers and open some doors and that really will help them well in the future. All right. Well, this has been a great discussion. I want to thank all three of you for uh, joining us today and giving your insight into applying to ENT, into DO programs. I think it's been very helpful and I hope that our students uh, that are listening enjoy this. That about wraps it up for today, though, and stay tuned next time for another episode of ENT in a Nutshell.